0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So, de- depression, probably more than any other emotion that we're, that we're talking about over this series, is difficult to define. Webster's dictionary says this, and I think it struggles. It says, the state of feeling sad. And that leaves me wanting more. So the next definition that Webster's gives is a little more robust. It says, a mood disorder marked especially by sadness, inactivity, difficulty thinking, a significant increase in appetite, a significant decrease in appetite, time spent sleeping, feeling sad, feeling hopeless, feeling isolated. So even in the more robust definition of depression, there are still contradictions like you could be really, really hungry. You also could not eat. And, and obviously, not all of these symptoms must manifest in order for someone to feel or be depressed. And so not only is depression difficult to define, it's difficult, difficult to explain. Many who experience chronic depression have a difficulty in explaining what situations would have caused the depression in the first place. In fact, a lot of them say, I can't point to anything. Even in situational depression, it's difficult to find out why a situation caused sadness that is now extended to every part of our lives. I did spend a little bit of time speaking with some folks who, for them, depression has been a big part of their Christian life. And what emerged from these conversations was that depression is hard to define largely because depression is a bundle of things. It's a bundle of physical Conditions and mental conditions and spiritual conditions that affect everyone in really different ways. So depression is physical, right? Those who suffer can have a loss or an increase in appetite. They can have insomnia or they can suffer from extreme lethargy, from being tired all the time. And often there are a lot of chemical and biological factors wrapped up in what's going on for those who are suffering from depression. But depression is also mental. Thoughts and feelings of sadness and despair and isolation and loneliness and hopelessness mark depression. And some who suffer from depression suffer so deeply that they experience suicidal thoughts. And not only is it physical and mental, it's also spiritual, right? Regardless of your faith, there is something going on in the soul. And for the Christian, there's often deep confusion about who God is and why he would allow this sadness in us. Confusion about why we feel so far from God in those times. Depression is so different for so many people. There are plenty of times when, like I said, depression is situational, the result of a death or uh, a difficult relationship or any number of situations that can cause depression to creep in, but also it can come without reason, making it even more elusive and more confusing for the people of God who wish to find comfort in their suffering. And so, as we read just a minute ago, and we're going to read it again, maybe you notice Psalm 88 is the only psalm in the Bible that offers no hope. There are 150 psalms, and this one is unique. There is no hope in the psalm. It ends without any indication that deliverance from suffering, that comfort in our suffering might end. And it's unlike any other psalm in this way, but that doesn't mean that God's truth isn't found here we'll get to see how the Lord in this psalm has given voice to a lot of the physical and mental and emotional and spiritual symptoms of depression. So, if you are experiencing a season of extreme sadness, there is something here for you. And if you have experienced or or are experiencing situational depression, there is something here for you. If you experience depression that comes without reason, there is something here for you. And if you're looking for ways to help those who are suffering with extreme sadness or depression, there is something here for you. And I think that should cover all of us. So in the Psalm, uh, your translation likely gives a title that's this I cry out day and night before you. In other translations, there are other titles given, one is unrelieved sorrow. Another is a lament and prayer for affliction. And there's another that says a cry from the depths. And I think as we read together, we'll see that any of these are appropriate. While we read it again, please take note of the language here. This is poetry used to describe the feelings of the people of God. Notice the strength of the language and the lack of hope. Here's Psalm 88. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you as your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon, in hell? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me and your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is heavy, right? This is... This is the hopeless psalm. The last word of Psalm 88 is darkness. That's the psalmist's only friend. And the author believes that God's wrath has fully fallen fallen on them. They're both hopeless and isolated. In the pit of death, they have been abandoned by all their friends and family, their beloveds. Verse 15 is an indication that there may have been a physical disease that was causing this suffering, such as leprosy, but we don't know for certain because historians don't know the context for the psalm. We don't know who the people are in the intro or the context for what this was written. While the last words of the psalm are darkness, the first words are, O Lord God of my salvation, showing us that the author still Turns to prayer, even when there is, quite frankly, no apparent reason, as they kind of unpack, as they work through the poem and the prayer, there's no reason to pray. The psalmist begs God to hear their pleas and cries, but all they can do is ask. And this psalm, Psalm 88, is the type of ask that they, that they pray And so when I read this and and kind of thought about it all week, I started to ask myself, have, have I ever prayed a prayer like this? Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Maybe you have, but for me and maybe a lot of you also, we might be extremely uncomfortable with a prayer like this. A lot of us were taught that prayer should only look like gratefulness to God, that we have nothing to complain about, that our sorrow or sadness isn't something to bring up before the Lord, and that we should get over it or cheer up. But there's a tension here, right? Like, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that those aren't prayers that we should pray to God, prayers of gratefulness, of joy, of rejoicing, of worship. Those are fantastic things to pray. But this is God's Word, and this is God's Word given to us in a book of prayers to Him. It's a book meant to be prayed and sung, which means the people of God can pray this and not be sinful and not be wrong. This is why verse 1 is so important, I think, because it gives us the foundation. Oh, Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. So before the expression of how we feel, there's an acknowledgement of the truth. Right, that God is the God of salvation. God hasn't abandoned us even if we feel like it. But the call of this text and the call of the Christian life isn't to stop feeling how we feel. It's to bring the fullness of who we are, the fullness of our soul, of our mental and physical states, the fullness of how we feel to God and ask Him to hear it. So how is it true that God hasn't abandoned us in these times? How is it true that this is the word of God that can be prayed? Well, let's go back and rewind the clock a little bit to the story of Jesus during Holy Week. And to remind you, Jesus comes to earth as fully man and fully God. He is born on earth, right? And he... He grows up and preaches the good news of himself that he has come to take the sins of the world upon himself and save humanity from their sins. And in order to do this, he goes and is crucified. And in the process, he's abandoned by all of his friends, all of his followers, and tortured And in the account of the, in one account of this from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 25, or 27 rather, it says this starting in verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, this is Jesus, fully God, Son of God, being forsaken by God the Father, on the cross, right at the point of his death. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't know, this line is from Psalm 22, verse 1. And so, as a side note, Jesus, at his lowest point on earth. Right at his death, he quotes the Psalms. At the peak of his anguish and the destruction of his physical body, his mind goes to the Psalms. That should be a good example for us. But I want us to think about what's actually happening in this moment, right? In this moment, the sin of the world, all past, all present, all future, the sin of all humanity is being placed on Jesus. So if you were here last week, we talked about anger, righteous anger, right? All of God's wrath and anger is toward, righteously toward all of the brokenness of humanity, all of the sin of humanity. And yet, instead of His wrath falling on humanity, it instead goes to Jesus. Jesus becomes the object of God's wrath. A person who doesn't deserve it becomes the object of God's wrath. A righteous God becomes the object of God's wrath. And in that moment, he is forsaken. So what does this mean? Let me narrow it down by saying what it does not mean. So forsaken does not mean that Jesus stopped being in communion with the Father. Forsaken does not mean that he stopped being loved by the Father. Forsaken does not mean that the Holy Spirit left Jesus. Nor does forsaken mean that, that Jesus is being sinful in this cry. But Jesus was actually forsaken because he says, why have you forsaken me? He wouldn't say it if, he wasn't, if it wasn't true. He's God after all. He was sent to die, and he was made to be sin, even though he knew no sin. This is what it means to be forsaken, that that none of his disciples comforted him. That God, like he did in the earlier pictures of the gospel, God did not rift the heavens open and say, this is my beloved son. The Spirit does not descend in the form of a dove to remind Jesus of who he is and comfort. No angels appear to tell him to keep going. He was indeed forsaken. He was alone. Christ was forsaken because he was alone in accepting the punishment for all sin on our behalf, on behalf of humanity. The wrath of God that was poured out for all of us is instead poured out on guiltless Jesus, God himself. And at the peak of his anguish, Jesus says that quote from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Luke tells us that right after, with his dying breath, he says this, Into your hands I commit my spirit, Father, which is Psalm 31.5. Except Jesus adds the word Father. Father, into your hands I go. So, at Jesus' lowest point of sorrow, anguish, torture, he cries a psalm. And as he breathes his last and departs, he cries a psalm. And so, looking back at Psalm 88, where is Jesus in this psalm? Well, if you've got it up. Look along with me. I'm not going to reference each verse, but you'll see some of this language that we've talked about, that Jesus is the one who is forsaken among the dead and slain, and he is the one who lies in the pit, in the tomb. He is the one who's cut off from the hand of the Father. Jesus is the one in the pit. Jesus becomes the one whom the Father's wrath lies heavy on as he takes the sin of the world. His companions do shun him. They do deny him. They do betray him. His eyes grow dim as he approaches death on the cross, and he cannot escape it. Wrath is swept over him, and the dreadful punishments assault him for the sin of the world. And the psalmist in Psalm 88 asks some questions of God that at the time were simply part of his hopeless prayer, right? He's asking God these things almost expecting. He isn't almost expect. He's expecting nothing in response. The psalmist asks, do you work wonders for the dead? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness declared there? Do the dead rise up to praise you? Well, on Easter, we celebrated the fact that Three days after the, or on the third day since the crucifixion, that Jesus rises from the grave, and even though his body was destroyed, and he faces the depth of darkness like none have ever faced before, and none will ever face since, he rises in victory over sin, and death, and depression. So the psalmist's questions are answered in Jesus. Do you work wonders for the dead? Because of the resurrection, wonders were worked for the dead. The dead in Christ are now alive. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Because of the resurrection, the steadfast love of God has been declared in the grave. Death no longer has a sting, no longer has victory, and His faithfulness now reigns. And do the dead rise up and praise him? Yes. Because of the risen Christ who rose in praise, we will rise in praise. There is hope here. There is hope for those who are struggling in hopelessness. There is hope for those who are struggling in isolation. There is hope for those in deep sadness. And that hope will remain And it will remain true whether or not we feel it's true in our lowest moments. God doesn't need you to cheer up in those moments, He needs you to bring the fullness of who you are to Him. So, for those, uh, so what does it look like for those of us who struggle to live in this tension between real, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual depression? between that and the great hope of the resurrection. Well, first, it's possible. First takeaway is it's possible to be close to God and struggle with depression and deep sadness. This psalm shows us that. It shows us that you can cry out to God in your darkest and most painful moments. Not only can you, but you should you can pray the fullness of how you feel before God. Also, if you're struggling with depression, you can, you can be part of community. It might go against everything your body, mind, and soul want in those moments. Maybe the last thing you want to do, right, to invite people in to the depths of your sadness And look, in, inviting people in in community isn't going to fix it. It might not help you cheer up, but it can certainly help sustain you. God has given us a people to belong to in order that we can experience joy with one another, that we can experience gratefulness with one another, and we can rejoice with one another. But certainly, He has given us a people to belong to so we can lament with each other too, to be sad with one another to mourn with one another. And if you are a believer in a time of depression, you certainly probably feel like, well, I just contradicted myself, you certainly feel like darkness is your only friend, like the psalmist in Psalm 88. But the truth is that Jesus experienced the agony of darkness in friendship on the cross. And in doing so, he made you a friend of God and more than a friend, a son and a daughter. We are his beloved children and co-heirs. Jesus' ex- experience with the psalmist feels like they're experiencing to make it untrue for you. And for those of you who maybe aren't suffering with depression or, or any deep sadness currently, What can you do for somebody in your family or your neighborhood parish who's suffering with grief and depression? Well, first, and primarily, you can pray for them. You can pray Psalm 88 for them and over them on their behalf. You can pray all sorts of psalms over them and on their behalf. You can pray that God would deliver them. You can and should pray with them, but also... You can be with them. It's okay to sit in silence with those who are suffering. I get it, I'm a I'm a fix it type of person, so I want to figure out the right combination of words and prayers and activities that will cheer someone up. But a lot of the time that does more harm than good. Sitting in silence and simply being present for those who are experiencing the depths of depression and sadness can prove the simple truth that they're not alone even though they feel like it. Even though all of their mind and all of their body and all of their soul is screaming that you're alone, you can prove that wrong by being present. So if you're in the position of of comforter, comforting somebody in this season, don't don't expect a lot. Don't expect to be the one to fix it. Don't expect to be the one to cheer them up. Don't get frustrated in their suffering. Be with them. Love them. Pray for them. I think prayer and presence is a helpful combination for those of us who want handles on how we can help people who are suffering. Be present And be prayerful. And all of us should know this, that that Psalm 88 ends in darkness. It does. But Psalm 88 is not the end of the story. Regardless of how deep depression and sadness might go, if you are a believer in the room, darkness does not win. Death does does not win. Darkness is not the end of our stories. We can turn the page from Psalm 88 and look to the beginning of Psalm 89 for hope. It says this, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offsprings, offspring forever, and I will build your throne for all generations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for placing your wrath not on us who deserve it but on your son what grace is ours that the anger and wrath reserved for us were placed on another and that we can lament the forsaken Jesus on the cross but we can also rejoice of what it means for us And we'd never lament that without focusing on Easter Sunday just as much, where we see Jesus risen in victory over death, over darkness, over sadness and depression and grief. And so, Lord, would you, in your grace and in your Holy Spirit, equip us to minister to one another when we're in seasons like this, where Hopelessness and isolation are pervasive in our lives would you give us the tools to be prayerful and present with those who suffer and would you give those who suffer the comfort of your word and the assurance from your spirit that they can bring the fullness of what they experience to you God of our salvation and Lord that if we feel like you're far, we wouldn't be afraid to pray it. If we feel like we're being assaulted, that we wouldn't be afraid to pray it. That you're a, a father who wants to know us, love us, care for us, who does know us, who does love us, who does care for us. And thank you for giving us your word that helps us feel like we're not alone a psalm that in the depths of our hopelessness speaks exactly to what we're feeling or at least enough of what we're feeling to give us a reminder that you are the God of salvation. Will we not forget that? Will we not forget that the sunrise is coming, the new dawn is coming where you will return for your church? And the dead will rise will rise anew and celebrate with one another where you will by your hand wipe tears from our faces that you have been storing in bottles and that you will with your outstretched arms not bear a cross but but provide an embrace we look forward to it will we celebrate in the, it in the meal this morning, will we look forward to it, remember what you did providing your body and blood. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We pray all this in your name.